You've been sold the idea that financial independence is all about some number on your account statement. Or even worse, that you don't qualify because of where you started out. That's just not true. It's not about some well-kept secret of the wealthy. It's about finding the right information and knowing how to apply it. On the Get Ready for the Future show, we're answering your questions so you can start making real financial change today. The journey to true financial independence begins right here, and it starts with you. Helping our clients achieve and maintain true financial independence. This is the Get Ready for the Future show. Glad to have you along. My name is Scott Inman. John and Janet are traveling for business purposes. So Chad Roller from the Conway office. I was about to say up from the Conway office, actually down from the Conway office as we sit here uh, in West Little Rock, Arkansas this morning. Glad to have you. How's how's everything at Conway? Good morning. Yes, everything is good. Bright and sunny and drying out. Yeah. Need a little rain in Bologna too, right? I mean, that's a, a right. Conway office is where you work. Bologna is where you call home. So I'm just wondering if I'm missing any news up there in Faulkner County. Uh, pretty no? much is good. School's out, so everybody's starting to to do the vacation thing. But um, but yeah, everything's great. Yeah. Well, this is your first uh, co-hosting slot on the Get Ready for the Future show since we changed to the question and answer format, right? So we are now taking questions from viewers and listeners. Uh, and getting them on the air and answering them. So you ready to roll? I'm ready. All right, so let's dive in. And we will say off the top, if you've got a question for us, uh, you can call and leave a voicemail, or you can text the question to this number, 501-381-5228. That's 501-381-5228. Leave a voicemail or text it. Uh, We'll get your question answered on the air. You can also send us an email. Just send it to show at getreadyforthefuture.com. Dot com. So first up today on the show, it's Jacob from Bryant. And Jacob writes, I'm 54 and I've had an advisor for a long time. But listening to your show, I realized he was betting my retirement income on the 4% rule. Now I'm worried about if I'll have enough. I have about $50,000 in my IRA plus an additional 400000 or so in my employer plan. And I'm not planning to retire early, but who knows what the future holds. How do I know if I'll run out of money? Well, Jacob, thanks for the question. There's a lot in there, a lot of places we can choose to attack this. I do want to mention first, uh, pick out a little part of that question where he says, who knows what the future holds? You know, that's very important. I'm glad that he recognizes that and he has no plans to retire early. But I did look up a quick stat, and this changes a little bit, but not too much, uh, online before we went on the air, that the age that most Americans believe that they are going to retire is age 65. But the age that they actually end up retiring is around, on average, 62. So bottom line there, most Americans retire earlier than they anticipate. And the reasons are many, but job loss is one of the main ones. It it said 56% of those 50 and over who had steady income from a job had been pushed out early, earlier than they wanted to go. So job loss, a big reason for that, Chad, and also health uh, becomes a big reason. So it it is a great question uh, and there's a lot to it we're going to get into, but I think starting out, it's good to, that Jacob is thinking about being prepared to potentially retire early. And I think this is a pretty common question that we get, do I have enough? I yep. think that's that's kind of the the one thing that all clients need to come in and they come in with first is, do I have enough? And I think the first thing that we go back to them asking is, how do you know you have enough? Because you haven't told us what you need. Right. Right. So we've kind of d- defined that. I think that Jake, for Jacob, the very first thing that that I would uh, encourage him to do is to start defining what he needs. Mm-hmm. 
And, uh, you know, we do that on a, on a basis of required and desired income because it's not about the assets. It's about income. Yeah. So we don't have, Jacob, enough information in your question to really give you that solid answer, right? There's a few more numbers we need to plug into the math equation here. If you have 50000 in your IRA or four, and 400000 in your employer plan, I think that's great. Is 450000 enough to provide you the income you need, as Chad mentioned, which means you can pay the bills, and the income you want, which is your discretionary income? What do you want to do in retirement? And if you don't know how to quantify that just yet, begin to think about what you plan to do when you do walk away from work. And then we have to monetize that and determine how much income that's going to require. Yeah, and Scott, you've probably seen this a lot. There's there's two t- two sides to this story as well. Not only what they need, uh, but it's also the investments. Mm-hmm. So it's it's kind of what you're doing on a personal basis, but then also what you're doing on an investment basis. And what you can be doing on the investment basis can be really good, your contributions and all those things. But if you're not doing those same things in those personal finance habits, mm-hmm. then whatever you're doing on the investment habits uh, it could it could not be be able to keep up. You know, I've, I've said this a hundred times. Uh, I could go to the gym every day, but if I don't eat right, I'm not going to see the results. That's right. Yep. And that's the same thing on the investment side. You could be making these contributions and, and doing the things that you're doing, but your spending and uh, the debt load that you're going to carry into retirement may not may not you may not ever be able to catch up to what you need and actually to make sure that what you have saved is enough. So let's attack the 4% rule part of his question, because that was the very first part of it. He said, listening to our show, so I'm sure he's heard us talk about the 4% rule and the fact that it is a rule of dumb and it works until it doesn't. But let's define what that is for for people who are listening or watching and have not heard us talk about that. And then we're going to give a real world example of how that might play out. So the bottom line here is, is the 4% rule is kind of attached to the asset allocation strategy that has been in place for a long time in the financial services industry. And, the, and here's the way it works. is basically at retirement, you need a balanced portfolio. Uh, you don't need to be all in equities. And we would agree with that part. Um, but the uh, static asset allocation model says 60% of your assets in stocks or stock instruments like mutual funds or ETFs and 40% in fixed income or bonds. Okay, so the, the concept here is a balanced portfolio the fixed income will soften the blow of the volatility and the stock component of it, and you'll rock along and be okay and never run out of money if you pull about 4% out of that portfolio. Well, what we saw in 2022 was it's very possible for that 60-40 portfolio to nosedive, right? Especially when rates are up. Yeah, so rates rose in 2022, which put downward pressure on bond prices, and it was one of the worst years on record for the 60-40 portfolio. So Let's take a a modified version of that in any given year and put some numbers behind it. So if your initial portfolio were a million dollars, let's say, and the first year of retirement, you decide you're going to adhere to this rule of 60-40 and take out 4% of your portfolio every year. So that would be $40,000. But what if the market dropped? Let's say your million dollars went to 800,000. Now that's a severe example but that's what happened that's that's about what happened in 2022 in a 60 40 portfolio mm-hmm. as measured by uh the the indexes there the stock index and the uh, bond index so you would enter year two with eight hundred thousand dollars due to the market decline which oh by the way you took out forty thousand so let's say the the total difference was going from a million to eight hundred thousand if you 
have to make a decision in year two, what are you going to make? Are you going to take the same 4%? Because it's the 4% rule, that is your strategy. Well, if you apply that to the, your income formula, well, now you have to take pay cut, right? Because you 4% of 800000 is $32,000 per year. And most people are not going to do that, Chad. No, no, because there's not many times that we've seen in history that prices go down. Right. So you don't want to take 32000 So most people are going to continue to take the forty instead of 32 and now you're withdrawing 5% in this example instead of 4 you've already destroyed the 4% rule and your money could run out much earlier at that rate so that doesn't work and we don't plan with that in mind so what what do we do Chad let's talk through how we take that uh, volatility component off of the money we're taking out right now well we've talked about it several times here the market volatility the inflation risk and longevity and so therefore that we have to have a strategy for that and we call that the bucketing strategy the income for life model and so basically we're breaking it down into time segments that we're going to need those funds over your retirement lifetime and so therefore the very first segment we do not want that fluctuating with the market so we need to be very conservative with those investments and then as those segments are time slotted out for the future we need to be more aggressive to help increase that income over time for inflation so those clients that are coming in and we're doing reviews on right now that we've got them in this strategy hey listen yeah last year market was down uh pretty you know significant amount those later buckets were down but their income hasn't changed and yeah. so that is allowing us to be uh, proactive instead of reactive to when we have some downturns in the market. Yeah, so and, and a great point to add to that, we just had a review too yesterday where the client's overall account value is down, right? Even the bond component has suffered uh, in the last uh, 12 months. But where we are taking the income from, we haven't sold anything. And that's the key component here. You know, we talk all the time about it's a, not about the economy, it's about your economy. And what that really means is you have to be able to control what you can control. We cannot control market returns. We can't control what the fixed income market's going to do. We can control what we sell and when we sell it. And for Jacob, he's got control right here because yep. he's obviously making contributions. Mm -hmm. He's 54 years old, not looking to retire tomorrow. So he's got some time to do some planning. And so, Jacob, I'd, I'd just encourage you to think about what you're doing on a personal finance basis about what are you what are you doing to require those uh, the amount of income that you actually need? So are you eliminating those debts and lowering that required income? So therefore those assets are going to be able to be suffice for retirement. And then also how are you positioning those assets? Are are you still being aggressive in uh, part of your portfolio in order to get those to get that growth you need in dollar cost average until you come up to retirement? And I would say this for Jacob, if as we close out on his question, and if it's you, uh, this, this is a, a comment for you too. If you have an advisor and that's your only retirement income plan is the 4% rule, would you like to build a plan? We'd be happy to walk you through the GenWealth Ready to Retire process. You can call toll-free 866-653-PLAN. That's 866-653-7526. We've got offices all over Arkansas and Northwest Louisiana. Chad's in Conway. I'm in Little Rock. We've got a Bryant office Hot Springs, El Dorado, Shreveport, Louisiana. You can call that number and get scheduled with an advisor just to walk through the ready-to-retire process and build a retirement income plan for you. Next up is Alicia from Cabot, and here's what she writes. I'm 43 and recently inherited $175,000. I'm helping to pay for my kids' college education, thankfully not too expensive with scholarships. 
she puts in parentheses, but I'm not sure what to do with my inheritance. Do I pay off my mortgage? Do I invest it even with the recent market conditions? Good question. Thank you for that. Alicia recently inherited $175,000. So two things first. Uh, The first thing we need to ask, Chad, is how did that $175,000 come to her? Right. And so I kind of explain this to clients. What is the wrapper around that money? Yeah. So there are different types of wrappers around the money. And what I'm saying that is, is it a pre-tax or is it uh, qualified, non-qualified money? Those are the types of things that we need to find out first, because we need to understand the tax consequences for either withdrawing those monies or did she receive a step up in basis? And so if we start to liquidate those assets, what is the tax consequences for doing so? So if it came to her through a bank account, a savings account, a life insurance, there's likely not too much to worry about on the tax side. But if it is in an IRA, for instance, and it was, uh, we don't even really, it doesn't tell us where she inherited it either, right? So let's walk through that. If it was from a parent who had passed away, then she's the next generation on that IRA. And inherited IRAs, the way they are taxed and the way they are required to be withdrawn, I guess the way their tax hasn't changed, but the way they are required to be withdrawn has. It has. And so, you know, previously, prior to, I believe, 2020, 2020 mm-hmm. then uh, you could stretch that tax over your lifetime. So the, the IRS said, hey, you've inherited this. We Taxes are still owed on these assets, uh, and we are going to allow you to stretch those over your lifetime. They came in and basically said, hey, you got 10 years and you've got to withdraw these assets out of that particular IRA and into basically, I call it what, washing through the tax system, yep. paying the taxes on them, and and then you're able to utilize those assets as non-qualified monies moving forward. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the game has changed a little bit with those uh, withdrawal requirements, but if it's inherited money like just cash in a bank account, mm-hmm. let's, let's address that. What can she do with that money? And she's asking, hey, do I pay off my mortgage? Do I invest it? And I'm a little bit scared with the market. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So aren't we all, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, there's right. there has been, this has been one prolonged downturn, and it's been really wild to watch the ups and downs of the news that comes out when it comes to the economy and the markets. I mean, one day it's great, one day it's bad. And we're still in this uncertain time. But the reality, I think I would say first, with if you're uncertain about investing dollars that are on the sidelines into the stock market, I would say, first of all, there's never going to be a time where things aren't uncertain. I mean, that's just reality. We've got a chart up in our uh, office here that talks about all the world events that have taken place uh, over the last, you know, since the 1920s, right? And we've had world wars. We've had financial crises. We've had all kinds of threats to the ongoing success of the American economy, but they have all been blips on the radar and we've continued to go up now. So don't let uncertainty keep you from investing. We also have a chart that shows us that even in quote unquote downtimes in the market, you can have some pretty good days and how important that is. This is actually from Hartford funds. And I love this on the right side of that graphic for people watching on our video version. It shows us the S&P 500 index returns, the average annual returns from 1993 to 2022. So basically the last 30 years. And it shows you the hypothetical investment of $10,000 would grow if you were fully invested over that 30-year time period to about $178,000 and some change. But if you missed just the 10 best days, 
10 days over 30 years, your return would be 54% less. Wow. That's amazing. And then you stretch that out to those other green bars. If you missed the 20 best days, it's 70-something percent less. And I can't read it from here. That's the reason I said 70-something. <laughs> and if you miss the 30 best days, look at the impact it has. Huge difference in your overall returns. Now, the S&P 500 is an index. It cannot be directly invested into. And these are historical returns and not indicative of a future results. But on the left side, I find this even more fascinating. So, okay, we don't want to that, – that makes the point on the right side, Chad, that we don't want to miss the best days of the market, just the very few best days – but we're in a bad time right now, right? So everything seems like the market seems like if you really thought about it psychologically, the market's going down every day, right? We don't really think of it going up. But the left side of that graphic, if we can put that back up, shows us that the best days in that same 30-year time period, 52% of them, these are the 50 best days, 52% of the 50 best days happened during a bear market, which we are still technically in. We are flirting with going into a new bull market, and that's defined as the market closing 20% higher than the most recent low. So during the first two months of a bull market, 26% of those 50 best days occurred. So you're talking about three quarters, more than three quarters of the best 50 days over 30 years happened in a time that we could say is right now. Yeah. And right? for Alicia, you know, when we say, hey, are you ready to invest this money? Yeah. I think that just by seeing these charts, it shows that you've got to stay invested. Yep. So the very first thing we'd want to do with the Alicia is say, all right, number one, what are all of your debts? Is it just the mortgage? How do I know if I need to pay off the mortgage? Or what are your other debts? Do you have some other things out there looming and some expenses that you need to take care of first? Obviously, the kids' college is, is a concern for her. But in this chart, it shows that if you start investing, you want to stay in for the long term. Mm -hmm. You don't want to be reactive and start coming back after this inheritance money just because you thought, hey, I need to get this invested. It really depends on what you're doing out elsewhere as far as the other debts and the other expenses that you had. Now, one of the things we want to make sure is she's got an emergency fund. Right. That's going to be the first, right? Yep. yep. And, and that will allow her to determine if she can invest the rest of that. So there's a lot of, uh, a lot of variables in this, but I would say that don't be scared to invest this inheritance, but sometimes just going directly and saying, Hey, I'm going to get rid of this mortgage right now may not be the most efficient way to get, to get the plan started. Yeah. Think of your goals in terms of immediate, intermediate, and long-term. So divide them into three pots there and chad's already mentioned the emergency fund that's the immediate right there, there may be something that you need to pay off debt that could be an immediate need but also having an emergency cash fund to not have to go into debt the next time you need something make sure that's taken care of that box is checked and then intermediate do you have some goals you know that she mentioned uh, helping her kids pay for college it doesn't look like that needed to be part of this inheritance money uh, but if that's a goal uh, that needs to probably come in to play after the long-term goals are set because we would say to do that part in reverse order if you've had a, if you've got a trip or something like that i think that falls into let's make sure we're on track for our long-term goals first we use the analogy a lot when it comes to kids and education is make sure that you've secured your own oxygen mask before you help others absolutely sounds kind of callous selfish maybe right. but right. talk about why that's important well i think you know you being on your own financial foundation and being firm allows you to give you the flexibility to help your children mm -hmm. and we've seen that and, yeah. and so uh to the to those parents that are out there trying to put those kids first and and we all love our children but 
being financial, you know, having that financial foundation on yourself will allow you to not only help them now, but in years ahead. Yeah. And I think important to think about if you take care of your own financial or if you don't take care of your own financial future, uh, because you helped your kids in the here and now with college, then somebody's going to have to take care of you. Right. And guess who it's going to probably be? It's going to be your kids. So it's thinking about not being a burden later down the line for sure financially. So they can always get out of a student loan, pay off a student loan, not get out of a student loan, but get get through college without uh, having the funds to pay for it in a cash flow situation. But you won't be able to get those years back when it comes to uh, planning for your long term retirement. But to sum it up, I think for Alicia, you know, number one, she needs to figure out what the consequences or tax consequences are for liquidating any of those assets and, yep. and using those. And so definitely if there was some significant tax consequences, it wouldn't probably be a great idea to, to liquidate that all in one year and pay off the mortgage. Right. Excellent. Okay. Moving on. Nathaniel from Benton says, I'm 51 and I have a relatively consistent income, but it does fluctuate on commissions. I also have the opportunity for bonuses at different points through the year. Should I plan to invest any extra income or put it into savings since I have variable income? Great question, Nathaniel. And there are a lot of people out there that have uh, you know, variable income. I think there's a lot of ways to attack this, Chad, but I think because I do believe there's a little bit of a unique uh, part of this. You know, everybody's situation is different when they come into us, but I do think if you can work towards basing your budget and living your monthly expenses out of a base salary, uh, that is the best way to go. And he does say he has a relatively consistent income. So if you can, and, and, and let's work, walk through that because some people, some salespeople may have a base salary plus commissions and bonuses. So you could potentially, depending on what that salary is, I mean, if it's a very, very small salary, that may be difficult to do. But if you've got a a decent base salary, live off of that and consider all of the other, the commissions and bonuses extra. If you're 100% commission, there's another strategy you could take, and it's to take basically a 12-month look at what you made, your annual income, and say, where was my worst month? Where was my worst month? And could I create a monthly budget to live on that monthly number? Yes, and I think the ba- the very first step is the base. And then yeah. so those those months that you have that additional income, those commissions or that additional income, you have those surpluses, I think it's a great idea to, to utilize a percentage yeah. at that point. Mm-hmm. So those let's let's say your base, you want to base your base pay off of $3,000 and you get a $5,000 commission check. Now with that additional $2,000, utilize a percentage plan in order to allocate where those funds are going to go. Mm-hmm. Because having that up front, will allow you to name those dollars. And that's really what we want to do because what happens when we don't name those dollars is they get lost in the in, in the in the the uh, the thrills of life, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So having a percentage to know, okay, twenty percent over and above my base, I'm gonna that's gonna go to savings, period. And then the remaining percentages can go to these other goals that I want to set aside and be able to try to accomplish throughout the year. Yeah, because the second part of his question was, should I plan to invest any any extra income or put it into savings since I have variable income? So if you can get to the point where you know you're living day-to-day life uh, out of a base number, then you are able to utilize the extra income for more for investing. But first, there is an order of importance, right? When he said, uh, put it into savings since I have variable income, I think the inference there is, is because I'm going to need to tap it because my expenses are going to be 
uh, higher than my base income occasionally. But if, if you can get to where you're budgeting based on a base level of income, then that extra income can be used to build an emergency fund. We talked about that in the previous question uh, with the inherited money. That is so important because you want to stay out of debt. And the best way to stay out of debt is to have enough cash on hand to be able to pay cash for any unforeseen event in your life. Yes, and that and that will give you the foundation to be able to start investing, which we know that once we start utilizing those qualified accounts, there are consequences to going back in there and grabbing those funds back out of those retirement accounts. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the reasons why we want to get that foundation established so therefore when life does happen and those emergencies happen, then we don't have to go in there and pay those penalties for pulling back out. Yeah. Now I will say one of the things, you know, with with being on a uh, you know, a a not a set salary and having commissions and, and additional income coming in over and above what you've planned for, you know, there are some qualified accounts out there that will allow you to lower that taxable income. Yeah. And so that would be the the next step that I would, you know, help him to say, hey, Nathaniel, are you making those pre-tax cons- uh, contributions in order to lower that taxable income? Yeah. So that way, therefore, at the end of the year, you're keeping more in your pocket than uh, paying out in taxes. And that brings up another great question is we don't know, you know, a lot of people in sales, we don't know how he is employed, whether he's a W-2 employee or tax tax wise, or if he's a 1099. And that, if you are 1099, obviously you aren't paying taxes along the way unless you're making quarterly estimates. So you're going to have to deal with that tax burden uh, on an annual basis after you have determined what you have made for the year. But there are some great options if you're W-2 and you have an employer plan, a 401k option for you, go there. And we always say contribute enough to get the match. Your contributions are likely pre-tax. It could be Roth 401k money, and we obviously we won't get into that. But the, the pre-tax contribution does lower that taxable income. Plus, you're getting money that's on the table from your employer. So you want to get every penny of that. You don't want to leave any employer money on the table. But if you don't have that, if you're 1099 you have no 401k, there are some other options. There are, and some there are some uh, non-qualified investment options as well as just opening up a separate checking account to be able to catch those additional income months mm-hmm. and keep that out of your cash flow checking account. That way, because we all know, Scott, if it's in there, we see it. Yes. Right? Yep. And, and to us, it's spendable. So mm-hmm. sometimes when you've got those extra months, being able to hide that money in a separate savings checking account will help you keep from going in and dipping in. Yeah, and if you are a 1099 employee and you're considered self-employed, there's a great thing called a SEP IRA if it's just you, right? If you're not uh, paying any payroll, if you're not uh, actually uh, in the traditional sense a business owner and you don't have any payroll and you're just a 1099 self-employed person, you can actually put into a SEP IRA up to 25% of your annual income every year up into a cap, but that cap is very, very high. So you could put, in essence, if you made $100,000 and all of that $100,000 is taxable to you on your 1099, you could make a $25,000 contribution to a SEP IRA, and it's considered a, a an employer contribution, which now reduces the $100,000 of taxable income to $75,000 for you. So you've, you've, you've had a double whammy, right? You've been able to put $25,000 toward your retirement, and you've been able to lower your taxes, their taxable income by... 25,000 as well. So good question there from Nathaniel. We're running out of time on the show, so let's roll on to our final question. And a reminder, if you have questions for us on the Get Ready for the Future show, call or text them 
to 501-381-5228. That's 501-381-5228. You'll hear your questions answered on the air. Or you can also send an email to ask that question. Send it to show at getreadyforthefuture.com. Last question of the day from Abe in Little Rock. I have an advisor, but it's just him in his practice. I've considered moving to a firm who can help me beyond what one guy can do. What happens if something happens to you, the financial advisor, or your firm? Who will take over and manage my accounts? If I was to stay with my advisor in his one-man shop, what would happen to my accounts? Good question from Abe. And to back that up, a little bit of data, and there's actually a couple of different articles. One from RIA Intel says nearly 40% of advisors plan to retire in the next 10 years. Uh, There's another article from Financial Advisor Magazine. The title struck my cord pretty hard it said graying of financial advisors (laughs) could lead to talent gap i I resemble that remark Uh, graying meaning that more than one quarter of advisors are planning to leave the business over the next decade that's according to ameriprise financial they surveyed 385 financial advisors and uh 26 percent were anticipating retiring over the next 10 years and when you put some real numbers behind that according to the uh, U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, there were about 330,000 advisors in the country. And that's eight, so 26%, 82,000 will be leaving, will be retiring. So this is a really good question. Just him, and, and if it's just one man and that person leaves, what does happen? Well, first off, we want to make sure that, that he's got a plan together. Yeah. Because, I mean, I, that would be number one that I would say go back to that advisor and say, you know, what is the actual plan? Is it written down? Is it something that I could go back and review and, and notate? It's not just something that is uh, both just stored mentally, yeah. right? Yeah. I think that would be the number one thing to to be able to give him some assurance to say, I've got uh, a plan on paper on purpose for the reason why we're doing what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Now, You're talking about for him, the client, yes, right? Yes, for yeah. him, the client, yes. Yes, yeah. But as far as, you know, Scott, I, I had a, before I came to GenWealth, I was actually in the in the wholesaling field. And so I worked with a lot of different advisors uh, all over the state, even out of the state. And I, I saw a lot of the different uh, types of shops that are out there, you know, a one-man shop and maybe a two-man shop. And as I was working through those advisors in that 12-year time period, you know, there was a lot of things that happened. You know, life happens, even yep. for advisors. Mm-hmm. We're not bulletproof. Uh, you know, things happen in your family, you know, maybe moves or you know, illnesses or, or th- things like that happen. And so, yes, it, it's not guaranteed that that advisor is going to be around all the time. So, you know, having something, a plan, and, and the reason why you're doing what you're doing, number one, to me is important. But number two, yes, working with a firm that has multiple advisors on staff and has a system, mm-hmm. much like what we have with the ready-to-retire process, so, therefore, it, it can be implemented across on a, on a much bigger scale. Okay, so let's get a little specific with he asked what will happen if, he, if his one-man advisor leaves, what will happen? And, well, that depends on how the advisor transitions out. If it's a planned retirement, he may have planned to sell, a, sell his book of business, is what we call it in the mm-hmm. industry, to whoever they choose. And you don't really get a say-so in that. You might be introduced to the new advisor before he leaves if it's done as in a succession plan, and that would be your new advisor, and you'd have to decide if that was a relationship you wanted to continue. But if it's unplanned, there's really no telling it. What happens many times is if someone leaves the business, and we've seen this, people have brought in accounts that are house accounts. In other words, if it was with uh, 
if it, let's say it was with Ameriprise, if, or if with, I'm not going to single anybody out to say one is better than the other, but let's just use a broker dealer as an example. You have a local advisor uh, who works for that company, and then if they just left the business and didn't do anything with your account, it's going to be a house account at Ameriprise in that case, right? Right. And so therefore, you know, you could still contact Ameriprise or whatever broker dealer is to to get information. But as far as having a local contact until that book of business is assigned or purchased, then you're you're just going to be at the corporate level. So let's talk about how it works here at GenWealth. And you have a team uh, of advisors on this show. And really, this is how it is in the client meeting room. We we strive very, very, very uh, diligently to have at least two. Well, usually is two advisors onboard clients, plan for clients, have a relationship with clients so that if something happens to one of the two of them, the other one is there. And then beyond that, we have a team of more than a dozen uh, advisors. Uh, Many are generationally coming behind us, and they are all being trained to plan the same way, to your point, Chad, to talk about uh, so the plan is on paper, on purpose, and they'll understand every bit of it, even if they didn't sit in on it, right? Right. Uh, And that will allow them to be able to continue that relationship for as long as you want to be with GenWealth. And the team-delivered approach is intentional, uh, and we're also training the next generation. So I hope that a- answers your question, uh, Abe, and that is going to be have to answer your question. That's all the time I have, right? That's all we you, got. You heard the bell there. It's time for our final thoughts. And, Chad, what's your final thought on today's show? Well, I think we had, we had some really good questions mm-hmm. and some common questions that we get often. Uh, and But I think the most important thing is taking the time to sit down with an advisor and go through the actual details of your questions. Because yeah. underneath these underneath the hood of these questions are a lot more details. Yeah. And it costs nothing to come in and sit down with a Gen Wealth advisor and go through your scenario and ask those questions. So I would just encourage anybody with, with those questions – Make an appointment with us, sit down, and we'll just have a conversation. Yeah, and that's a great point because, you know, we're doing we're doing our best to answer the questions. But as you notice the theme through this show and every one of these shows, there's going to be missing information, right? We do not have all of the information that we need to give you the full answer. We're going to educate you with these answers. We're going to give you some, some tidbits, but the only way you're going to be able to get the full answer answer you need is to come in and sit down with an advisor so that's a great final thought Uh, i do have a final thought that we do have an opportunity for you to get even more education by downloading a free resource we have it's called the seven steps to financial independence we're all about true financial independence for our clients here at GenWealth. if you'd like to download that you can text the word steps to 501-381-5228 or you can visit getreadyforthefuture.com forward slash steps or just email us show at getreadyforthefuture.com to get those seven steps to financial independence. And that's all the time we have for this week's Get Ready for the Future show. Thanks for watching online, listening on radio and podcast, and get those questions to us. 501-381-5228 to hear them answered on the air. Thank you for listening to the Get Ready for the Future show. If you enjoy hearing from the Gen Wealth team every week, make sure and subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help us get the word out on building toward financial independence, share the podcast with your friends and family. 
The Gen Wealth Financial Team is available to you 24-7 at info at getreadyforthefuture.com or call our offices at 866-653-PLAN. That's 866-653-7526. You should personally consult a financial advisor before making any investment and no strategy can assure success. Securities offered through LPL Financial. Member FINRA SIPC. Investment advice offered through Independent Advisor Alliance. Independent Advisor Alliance and GenWealth Financial Advisors are separate entities from LPL Financial.